Open up your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, as we we are doing the Lord's Supper today, I, I tend to once or twice a year preach on the Lord's Supper before we observe it. Uh, and as many of you know, we did that in November. So we're going to look at another part of the Lord's ministry here. And as you recall, this is a chronological study. And we are to Luke 18, verses 1 through 14 for this afternoon. And then we'll do the Lord's Supper at its conclusion. The title of this outline is Two Parables on Prayer, which uh, providentially every time I do the Lord's Supper on a day that I'm not teaching the Lord's Supper, there's usually some kind of incredible event in the Lord's ministry that ties in very well with it. And I think you'll find this is also going to be one of them. It says here in the text, Luke 18, verse 1, And he spake a parable unto them. And again, we have a a pronoun here, and we got to figure out who they are. So if you look at the end of Luke 17, we have the same audience. According to verse 22, the previous chapter, he was talking to his disciples. So he speaks a parable unto the disciples to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying there was a, uh, there wasn't a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary that he would not for a while, and he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me. This word troubleth is, is like a boxer that buffets the body, handles it roughly, disciplined by hardships, Strong says, and metaphorically it's speaking to give one intolerable annoyance, to wear one out by entreaties. He says, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust or unrighteous judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him? Though he bear long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth, which is a very interesting verse. This has come up a lot in a lot of Bible conferences and a lot of conversations between Christians. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? We'll continue reading just to cover all the text, and then we'll start breaking this down. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Who amongst this crowd might this apply to? Uh, you could imagine, but we, for teaching sake, we don't have to concern ourselves with specifically who. They've been following him around for a while. He says in the parable, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee. Well, now you know who he's talking to. And the other, a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That's not me, that's Jesus saying that. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Amen. Beloved, there won't be a lot of time spent on it, but there's a lot of Christians that pray the way this Pharisee does. A lot of Christians that today say, I'm thankful I'm not like this one or this one. Or Lord, you know I'm one of the best of this flock or of this community. 
Lord, help us to never be so simple-minded to think that we are suddenly sinless or even comparable. Our wickedness is sufficient enough to damn us to an eternity of hell. There are no degrees and levels of rebellion that make us better or worse than other sinners. We are all awful. We are all repugnant. So hot on the heels of speaking of that coming judgment that he talked about at the end of Luke 17, he goes right into a prayer that gives us the, our first point, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Remember how Luke 17 ended? He was talking about the eagles gathering together. He was talking about some being taken. Two here, one's taken. Two here, one's taken. And I pointed out that this taken is not the rapture. This is a taken in judgment. This is a ferocious taking, like a lion scalping them up. This taken is speaking of the judgment of God that compares to the day of Noah and the day of Lot that the Lord was talking about there in Luke 17. And he says, men ought always to pray and not to faint. This isn't a separate lesson. This is the same lesson. Speaking of the same event, it's almost as though there's a therefore. Therefore, because of the events coming on the horizon, the judgment of God, which is soon to be upon us, therefore, men ought always to pray and not to faint. When you live in a society that is rotting, I mean, think of what he says in 17, verse 37. Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. He's not speaking of a, of a great place to dwell. When you live in a society that is rotting and the air is poisonous, it's easy to faint. It's easy to become weary. We need to keep the mindset that Jesus portrayed for us there and pray always not to faint. Two periods or two days were described, Noah's and Lot's. Death was all around a society so blinded by their lust that they could not even smell their own rot. They, wouldn't, they couldn't even recognize they were in rot. The widow in that city, though, she could smell it. The widow in that city in that parable wore out the judge, the unrighteous judge, with her wearying over the rottenness about them. The only judge available to her is described as unjust, which is a word that's also translated unrighteous. Yet she wore him out with her petitions for change. Imagine day after day after day after day. Think of our society that we live in right now. Isn't that how we got here? The steady creaking of the liberal wheels of immorality demanded that they receive attention. And they have. Beloved, we see it, and we have to call it out for what it is. The squeaky wheel always gets the grease adage is true. We're not squeaking. Where are the Christians? Where are the men of faith creaking day and night as Nehemiah to see their God's plan unveiled? You got it. We're going to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, right after Ezra. I love Nehemiah. We ought to be like Nehemiah. Listen to this, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 and 6, but notice there in verse 1, first of all, the month. Because that's going to come up here in a minute. This is the month Chislu. The year for this lesson doesn't matter as much, but it's also in verse 1. But read with me, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, Nehemiah said, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is how we ought to pray. He didn't wait. He didn't deliberate. He didn't ponder all the other things he could do. He immediately 
fasted, mourned, and prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night. You might mark that if you mark your Bible. Day and night. Coming back to it in a minute. For the children of Israel, thy servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Not they. Not just this filthy publican over here. We, in the next ver- uh, next line in this verse, both I and my father's house have sinned. Beloved, that's how we have to pray. We have to have the focus that we do not deserve the ear of God. And if we have it, we plead for his mercy First and foremost, we give him thanks and praise for all that he has accomplished. But we recognize our position. In this conversation, Nehemiah is a filthy, dirty sinner like the nation of Israel, like his father before him, and he is falling on the mercy of God. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Chislu is between November and December on our calendars, on the Gregorian calendar, and, and Nisan is near the end of March. That's how long, as we see there in our text in verse 6, that's how long Nehemiah prayed day and night for the nation of Israel. Nehemiah was more than 700 miles away from the turmoil that he that came to him in this report. Yet he immediately labored to reach the Father on their behalf. He was almost a full Goshen away from the problems that were going on. And yet he owned them. He owned them. And he prayed day and night for months that the Lord would get involved. That the Lord would reveal Himself. That the Lord would be for His people. That He would spare them. That He would remove the burden or the turmoil that the nation was experiencing. In this parable about prayer, Jesus is contrasting, not comparing, contrasting the selfish judge and the heavenly Father. In that day, it was very difficult for poor widows to get justice because they lacked two means for bribing the officers who would get the judge to act. But this widow would not quit until the judge had given her what she was supposed to get. To the contrary, Jesus says in the text and reveals about God that we're beseeching an absolutely righteous judge. That his response would be swift and quick. Romans 8.28, one that we know very well, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. It requires less effort to reach him than this poor widow had to exert. But do we do it? You and me. This is a, there's a lot of things like this, but this is one of those things the pastor can't do it for you. Do you exert the effort, which is less than what this woman, this widow woman, who had real problems, it's less than what she exerted to get the attention of the unrighteous judge. We have his ear if we are born again. Our prayers are not an abomination unto him. Luke 11, verses 5 through 10, reads as follows, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
For a friend of mine is in journey, in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. This word importunity speaks of the beseeching, of the necessity and the consistency of the one asking. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, A-S-K, it's a convenient acronym. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to them that knocketh it shall be opened. And I like to point out whenever I'm teaching from Luke 11, verse 10, those words end with an F. So it's a continual process. Asketh, knocketh, seeketh. It's a continual process, day and night, for months, that's illustrated by Nehemiah here, to the beseeching of the Lord God. Whatever you're going through, whatever the trials, it may take a minute, but we see the Lord working. It may take consistency, and sometimes it's that that same thing we talked about at the end of December, that process that was described of necrotizing fasciitis, the process that was described with the mold, it's a process of cleaning and cutting and then testing. Has the lesson been learned? Is the toxic uh, thing that was being dealt with, has it been removed? Sometimes it's people, those lions, tigers, and bears we talked about last week. Sometimes it's things we like to hang on to that we shouldn't have anything to do with. But the Lord can have none of it. The Lord does not require most of you. He requires all of you. He does not require your worst parts nor your best parts. He requires all of you. And if there's any part of you that you're holding back, like Achan, burying it deep in the sand, it will be revealed. It must be addressed. He requires all of you. Just like the picture we've got of Joseph in our study on Wednesday nights with Genesis, all of the brethren had to be brought forth. We can see from Joseph's angle, Benjamin's the brother of his same mother. He wants him around. But God's behind all these things, and he required all of them to be there. As it was revealed in the dream, it must be so. All of them had to come out before the silver cup was placed into the bag, before the will of God was placed upon his people. They had to prove faithful. They had to prove that they were Israel and not Jacob. Secondly, shall not God avenge his own elect? And he will avenge them speedily. All of the points for this particular outline come right out of the text. Shall not God avenge his own elect? He will avenge them speedily. The widow had no lawyer. Well, we have a high priest. A high priest at the throne of God in heaven. She had no promises, but we have a Bible filled with promises that we can claim. She was an outsider, but we are the children of God. What a privilege it is for us to pray. With that in mind, we should be provoking one another to pray, even when the circumstances seem most unpromising, for we serve a mighty God who indeed loves His own. Consider the characteristics of God that are portrayed in this one verse, in Luke 18, verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? 
We see here He hears them at all times. We see here that He responds and swiftly according to verse 8. And what else is revealed here is His long-suffering toward them. His patience. His bearing long. His forbearance with His people. Are you a child of the King, beloved? Do you recognize the position that you are in? It's a beautiful song to consider. Whenever we see the providence of God, to consider the fact that we could be considered a child of the King. A child, unworthy. Unworthy. Thirdly, we read in the text, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Boy, there's times where I'm tempted to, to, to try and give an answer to that question. The lesson from the first eight verses of today's text is summarized by Brother Luke in verse 1. And then again by Jesus in verse 8. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. <coughs> Men ought always to pray and not be found lacking in faith. Men ought always to be about the Lord's will. This is the example that we have. Jesus says, I must be about my Father's will. When he's a young boy and he's in the temple asking and answering questions, he says to his mother, should I not be about my father's work? He says to the, those that know him, he says to those that don't know him, he says to those that can't hear him, I must be about the father's work. You have the greatest excuse in the world to not participate with the world in its sins. I must be about my father's work. This is not my home. I am a stranger in a strange land. A pilgrim. Men ought always to pray and not be faint. That word ought is used 106 times in the New Testament. And 58 times it's translated must. See, we have lost the meaning of the word ought. We kind of use the word ought now as a suggestion. You ought to clean your room. Not coming behind you. You ought to, you ought to clean your room. You ought to eat your peas. It's good for you. But... I mean, I'm not going to put them down your throat, but you ought to. That's not how he's using it here. He's saying must. And five other times it's translated must needs. Men ought always to pray and not faint. Men must needs always to pray. Men must always pray and not to faint. We tend to use ought as something that's just a suggestion. Some good idea that's laid out by some wise man. But this is God. And it's not just a suggestion, it's a command. Right. Ye must pray. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find. Men that pray always without fainting. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find men that pray always without fainting. That's what he's asking here. If we were honest with ourselves, would he find that in this room? It's hard. I'm only dealing with me up here. It's really hard to answer that question. I want to say if he comes at the wrong time, but that seems to go into some of the things we've been talking about. If he comes at the wrong time, quote unquote, he's going to find me fretting and doubting and fearful. But man, if he comes at the right time, he's going to find me faking it the best I can. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find men that pray always without failing, without fainting? Nehemiah was used mightily. 
And I don't think it's a stretch to say it was because he was found praying day and night. He was literally, if we read those first two chapters, he was beseeching a foreign king for the ability to go and be of, an assi- of assistance, to, to act, to see something done for those of Jerusalem. The message that Nehemiah received with the Jews and concerning Jerusalem was there in verse 3. The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. And, a, and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof burned with fire. Let's think about what's being said there. Those left of the captivity are in great terror, in great danger. The walls that would have been built for their protection are down. And beloved, they're not just down, they're on fire. If they were down, there'd be a way of escape. But they're not just down, they're on fire. He sat down and wept and mourned for God's people. He confessed the sins of the nation and pleaded for the mercy of God. If found in that moment, the Lord would have found a faithful servant, helpless to inflict change, helpless to avenge God's people, that was broken and mourning for their hurt. He would not have found a man sending a letter back to straighten them all out, but one that himself cried out like the publican of our text, Be merciful to us, for we are sinners. He would not have found a Nehemiah consulting the wisdom of the world, calling well-known and well-spoken men, looking for quotable answers to send back as motivation to his brethren. Do you know the Bible doesn't even talk about motivation. It says, stirring up, and it stirs up with truth. Let me call to remembrance this event that God did. Not what he might do, or what he could do, or what I sure hope he'd do, but let me stir you up with what he has done. not a quotable motivation it's a hey you have forgotten let me remind you and that's throughout the bible he would have found a man looking for an actual advocate to avenge the people of god this is what this widow woman in the parable is described as doing as well she's not looking for motivation she's not looking for a way to forget in 2024 we're really good at finding new ways to forget real problems are we not do you remember all that came out about our, our Hollywood being riddled with pedophiles and being out of control? Don't hear a lot about that under Biden, do we? We don't hear a lot about any of that anymore until a comedian comes and takes a shot at him and then he's removed and canceled. We're real quick at finding new ways to forget about real problems, but there's one real solution for all of them. It's Jesus Christ. What will Jesus find of us when he cometh? This question first posed in our text by Jesus himself has been asked often over the past few years. What shall he find? Shall he find again like he would have in 2020? Churches that believe themselves to be non-essential, closing the doors because they were a danger, a terror to their own neighborhoods? Or will he find faithful men that say these doors shall not close? Our God is real. Our God is alive. Our God is talking to us. He is saying, I'm coming soon. Will you be ready? Will you be watching? Will you be working? The the fourth thing that we find in this text is the phrase, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. It's not the first time it's used, of course. 
But as we consider this second parable again, we have another study in contrast. The Pharisee talked to himself and about himself, but the publican prayed to God and was heard. Do you know how vain it is to get down on your knees and talk to yourself about how great you are compared to the other guy over there? Because that, that, you two do that a lot. <laughs> Isaac and Charlie. But that's essentially what he's doing. The Pharisee is saying, man, I am awesome. I am so great. You know, it'd be like an NFL player going, just praising himself. We've got a couple quarterbacks in the NFL does that. Chiefs got one. So I'm a Broncos fan, so you're, you know you're all going to hear that a couple times. Maybe they'll lose today and they won't have to do it anymore. But this is what the Pharisee's doing. He, he's, he's in the right place, supposedly doing the right thing, tithing so often, which the Pharisees were known for. Uh, the, the religious would say he's doing all the right things, but he's not talking to God. Here's the thing. If you really know God, you wouldn't talk to God the way that Pharisee did. You absolutely would not talk to God that way. The Pharisee was boasting. The publican was praying, be merciful unto me. He didn't even lift up his head. He didn't acknowledge what the Pharisee was saying. We don't even know if he heard him, but he didn't acknowledge it. They're close enough that the Pharisee could point at him, so I'm sure he, he knew what was going on. But the publican was a sinner. Justified means declared righteous. It's a legal term that means all the evidence has been destroyed and there's no record that we have ever sinned. God no longer keeps a record of our sins. Psalm 31, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Instead, he puts to our account the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Amen. In my Father's eyes. All of this comes from the mercy of God and not the merits of man, not the boasting of the Pharisee. We are justified by faith. You know we're going to read this, Romans 5, verses 1-5. through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith. Justified means declared righteous. It's a legal term. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Let's bring it all full circle. Let's bring it all full circle real quick. So, with, with the Lord Jesus as the life, the way, and the truth, the only way to God the Father, sitting on our heart or, or, or at, the, at the, the beginnings of our motivations to do things, as we talked about this morning, that means, according to Romans 5, because we're free, because of justification, that every experience, I mean, these aren't great experiences. Nobody longs for any of these things. Tribulations, and so on and so on. But because of where He is in our lives, where He should be, and because of this justification, which is a legal term, expunging us of our, of, of our sins, 
that even tribulation can be for our good. This means that Romans 8.28 could be real. This means that God could love us so much that even the bad days have purpose that are good according to His will. The Pharisee in all of us must be mortified and that can only be done through humility, which is the picture the publican paints for us. Paul said to the Ephesians, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. This isn't Jesus speaking. This is Paul, who also suffered under the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly, and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, Behold, I go, I go now bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Acts 20, verses 18 through 27. Written in the margins of my Bible as Paul's great farewell to the church that he loves so much. He had a great love for the Ephesians. He held nothing back. Every jot and every tittle the humble man is used of the Lord according to his good pleasure to the furtherance of the gospel, not man's reputation. That Pharisee had a lot of reputation. A lot of reputation. Think about how he prayed. Lord, you know that I am known for. Everybody knows I'm better than... That's how he prayed. We are to be of no reputation because reputation gets in the way of the gospel. Reputation, in a lot of ways, becomes the gospel that we share if it's not mortified. I love this, this part of, of Acts 20, which makes me weep. He's leaving behind a flock that he loves so much, and he says, Behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, not knowing the traps, not knowing the dangers, not knowing the risks, but I am bound in the Spirit because that is who I serve. I am bound in the Spirit because it is, I have my heading. I know where, my, where the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is taking me. I am bound to go where He sends me. He says in the flesh, I might long to be here. I might long to be done. I might long for rest. I might long later to not be in a prison cell. But I will ask for my cloak and my parchments because I have my heading. I know where I'm going. He says on that ship, when the, the Eurachlodon comes upon the 300 and some people on that ship, stay inside the ship. The Lord has confirmed we will be safe if we stay together. Come and sup with me. Paul knew where he was going. 
That ship was torn apart completely and every soul survived. You you might say, if you know your Scripture, will survive for what? Paul had a poisonous adder on his arm later. Yeah, he survived that too, didn't he? We'll close with this. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. Is any among you afflicted? Do you know what James tells us to do? Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any among you merry? This seems like a weird connection, but is any among you merry? Let them sing psalms. What Paul and Silas do in that prison? They sang and they prayed, which is described in that text as worshiping God. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that he may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We all know that verse. But did you hear everything that went into it? Day and night beseeching God Himself. The humility. I confess the faults of a nation. I and my Father have sinned. Well, we all know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But when the Lord returns, shall he find a man with such faith? Remember the lesson he's giving here in Luke 18. The day of the Lord at the end of Luke 17 is coming. And there will be great judgment. Will he find any man of faith? Elisha was a man subject to like passions as we are. And Elisha prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three and a half years. He prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruit. The prayer of a righteous man does availeth much. Will the Lord find any who are so righteous, so focused, so Christ-centered, that they will have their eyes on Him.